Wabarakmuli hani gani yanten amu ampayara kayo banango tangkan wanarua and banjalang pintangkan birigaba and gangalu in Kekal, Yagara and Turrbal. Or in English, hello everyone, my name is Yarika Bales. I acknowledged my mother's people, the Wanarua and Bunjalung people of New South Wales, and my father's people, the Birigaba and Gungaloo people of central Queensland. But most importantly, acknowledging caretakers of country on this beautiful land we are today, paying respects to the Yagara people and also the Turrbal people, to their elders and to the honourable ancestors who paved the way for us. Now with that acknowledgement, it's important people understand why we do that, because it's got nothing to do with being politically correct. Unfortunately, a lot of acknowledgements um, can be very tokenistic. But when you understand that an acknowledgement or welcome to country is a very ancient diplomatic cultural protocol that's been carried out in this country since millennia. So you don't need permission to do an acknowledgement of country. We can all do that. But traditional um, welcome to countries are performed by the local custodians. So we pay our respects and thank the Yagara and Turrbal people for allowing us to conduct business in beautiful Mianjin today. And on today's podcast of Walking in Three Worlds, I get the opportunity of interviewing the founder, Dodgy, aka Greg Dodge. Hey, thanks, Yarika. Yeah. I also want to acknowledge the First Nations people of this country and particularly the Jurupun and the Yagara people of this land and um, pay all my respects to the elders that not only from our First Nations people but those that have come from all the lands here and now gather on this sacred space. Beautiful. Thank you, brother. So, Greg, tell us a bit about yourself, where oh. you were born and raised, a bit about your family. Oh, OK. So thanks for that question because my mob's if I can call it that, <laughs> are from Tasmania, which is Van Diemen's land, which has got a bit of a shady old past. Mm. And, um, you know, I've done some digging of my own ancestral. I'm a sixth-generation convict. Wow. Yeah, sixth generation. My great-grandmother came out at 17 on a boat with, by the way, 13-year-old women, 225 women from 13 up to probably 25, 28. It was a breeding ship. Uh, didn't come out. On the first fleet, and it didn't come out on the second fleet, it came out in between all on its own, okay. 225 women, 35 uh, sailors, and of the arrival, 37 babies were already born on or conceived on that trip. Wow. So you can imagine it was a bit of a, an orgy, if you like. Um, there is a movie about that ship called The uh, Floating Brothel. It was a book written um, in England. Uh, floating brothel, and uh, it talks about those lives. And even Kevin Rudd's great-grandmother was on that same boat called the Lady Juliana. Wow. Yeah, so that's sort of my settlement. They settled in Tasmania um, back in 1808. And uh, the firstborn from that thing, his name was Ralph, um, he ended up being gifted, <laughs> stolen uh, land, 150 hectares, um, that's become Dodgers Ferry, which is down at Carlton near Port Arthur. And he used to row a boat across from Seven Mile Beach um, to Hobart Town or to the midway point before Hobart Town. It was the shortcut mm. from Port Arthur 
for the military, the dignitaries and even the free settlers to get to Hobart Town. I mean, it was an idyllic lifestyle, to be honest. I, I, when you're in Tasmania, which is bloody cold, right? I mean, we're talking cold, cold. We'd swim in the Duant River and it always felt that there were icebergs coming by you. Oh, and we'd come out and we were blue. And that's what you'd learn to swim. I never became a great swimmer, partly because I'd freeze all the time. I really felt, hence why I moved to Queensland in 1980 and I never went back. You know, well, actually, it was 1978 I came up. Wow. So Tassie was a very quiet sort of place, not a lot of population, as mm -hmm. you know. And my surname being Dodge, at my school, there were like first cousins, second cousins, third cousins, Dodges everywhere. Wow. So I seem to have many cousins. 20 kilometres we lived from where the original convict's son, Ralph, had lived. So we're only 20 kilometres up the road. Mm -hmm. And I was probably one of the first that actually broke away and came to the mainland. Wow. You know, so there you go. Very interesting. interesting. Very interesting. Very different upbringing to, you know, how I would describe my upbringing. But can I ask, what was your first... Um, your first experience with the local people there, if any? Were yeah. you aware of them? Did you... Were you, you know, taught this in school? Was it part of the curriculum down that way in no, those years? Good question. And the truth is, no, it wasn't at school. But we'd go to the Hobart Museum, you know, and I, I don't know, maybe I was 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. And the Hobart Museum in there, they had a statue of a, of a very dark, very black, tall lady, strong and, and thin, and it had on it Truganini, the last of the Tasmanian Aboriginals. And it sort of imp it was imprinted in my mind because I always thought, hang on, if she was the last, what happened to everyone else? Exactly. So the question even then, even though I at that time didn't pursue it, uh, because there were no, we'll call them, um, you know, really dark Aboriginal people there. There were Aboriginal people mm -hmm. there in the city. We'd see them um, and they were lighter skinned. And they were always angry, you know. And as teenagers, we'd grow up, we'd go in there and if you looked at them sideways, you'd get beaten up. So you tended not to look sideways and you just get on with your own thing. But no discussion, nothing ever taught about it. And it wasn't until years later that I realised what a, what a horrific uh, series of events that had occurred. That's really interesting because I can definitely relate to growing up in Sydney being a very angry child, knowing that I've been forced to live off country um, and learning the colonial history of this country mm. and not understanding, you know, why we can't live freely in our own country. So I'd just like to touch on that, you know, when you said they were, you know, very angry, mostly fair-skinned, um, you know, First Nations people in that area because I can definitely relate and I can understand why a lot of us do become very angry or bitter or resentful being forced to live um, in this, you know, colonial setting. So the anger is justified but for me I've learned how to deal with that anger and it's, it's an everyday um, process of healing and holistic healing approaches. But just um, something triggered my memory when, when you said that because I've, I've heard a very similar um, scenario with a lot of other 
um, you know, people that call Australia home that aren't First Nations and they've had similar upbringings. They weren't taught about the true history of this country all throughout their schooling, education, and some of them are very recent as well. And they said, you know, we were always scared of the Aboriginal people. And a lot of that fear is still prominent and prevalent today, the fear of the minorities. And I just, I, I really wanted to touch on that because traditional Aboriginal society is a non-ego-based society and we are very respectful, very loving, very caring, sharing, giving everything but angry. So it's almost like a polar opposite um, to the foundations of traditional Aboriginal society. So it's interesting, when I left uh, Van Diemen's Land, Tasmania, uh, I was 19 years at the time, and I came all the way up to Cairns. We did Townsville and Cairns. Nice. Uh, and it was an eye-opener because that was the first time I actually ever saw really dark-skinned mm. Australians, you know, First Nations, and I went, oh, okay, that's, there's Aboriginal people here. You know, because in Tassie, it was really not any comment. It was like, oh, Truganini was the last... But I found out recently that that's not true. And yeah. there is the Palawi tribe. We didn't even know that. You know, I've only learned that more recently. There's over 300 community or more down there that identify First Nations people in a very strong community. Yeah, definitely. So I went to Mount Isa uh, with a band in uh, 1978. And I had witnessed something that made me think years later. And that was um, there was sort of the... Uh, the, the pubs and clubs up there, all, you know, white folk and so on. And there was a thing there called the Snake Pit. And it was just a corrugated sort of uh, venue that they hosed out um, of, a, of a morning. And it made me realise there was already there a segregation, um, you know, between at that time in mm. 1978. You know, and that, I don't know how long that went on, but that was my first exposure. Came back to Brisbane and I was, there was always this nagging, I need to know more, I need to find some people to connect with to hear the stories because yeah. it wasn't really that readily available. Mm. And it wasn't until 1992 when I lived at uh, New Farm okay. and I had a, a, a shop at my own business in Fortitude Valley that I met a man on the street who was darker skinned and his name was Ray. I'll call it my Ray moment you know, where we had a chat and I realised, God, what a friendly guy. And I said to him, I'd really like you to come home and meet the family, which, you know, due to my not knowing, he was saying, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to. And so we made a time and it was like for the next week, at a particular time, he never showed up. I never saw him again, but I'd got to know him over a couple of weeks, you mm -hmm. know, but I realised that he'd probably never been to a whitefella's house. Yeah. And, you know, it was sort of that realisation of, cultural differences yeah. and I wanted to bridge that and I think you know this is part of doing walking three worlds is bridging and healing and unification and a deeper understanding and respect yeah so that we can all share these stories because I think that's the key to it and we all share these openly and we all grow from that mm. and learn from that and not be afraid you know so the angry becomes not so angry you know? I love that. Beautiful. Yeah. So Walking in Three Worlds, you touched on that, and that's the title of the podcast. How did that come about? It's interesting. Look, I, I had a series of poems that oozed out of me in, in early 2020. Well, it happened in over a four-week period, pre 
COVID. It was just before COVID. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what to do with them. I thought, why am I writing about this? But I had had an experience, uh, which you're familiar with, with a group called the Empowering Youth to Thrive. And I spent two years immersed with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, Samoans, Pacific Islander from Tonga and Maoris and African and Mexican, all these youth, 15 to 24-year-olds. And I think, you know, I'd experienced some real cultural learning in mm. there. I think these poems were sort of like a, 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 an extension. I wanted to share what I'd learnt awesome. in a way. And the poems came out as one way to, to explore it. So I wrote about a series of five or six poems. Actually, I've got eight, but I'll, I'll say six, right? Mm -hmm. And they all came under a theme, which I call Come Together. And one of the poems, Walk in Three Worlds, I wrote about uh, a very dear friend who I worked on the program with, half my age, but he's a Samoan man. And he'd gone through, his name's Kitch, and he'd gone through his own cultural journey to find his culture and his language and be proud. Plus, he'd gone out to um, country, you know, to Aboriginal land, mm. and he was teaching young people music, song and cultural ways in Wurrabinda and Hopevale and Sherberg and, you know, and I was just so impressed with this man. So that poem was his journey, which wow. I'm proud to say people will be able to find on our podcast awesome. as we'll share that. Excellent. So just a bit more about you. Like, do you identify as Australian? Like, how do you introduce yourself? Um, so, yeah, that's a good question. I introduce myself, like, I don't go, oh, I'm an electrician or I'm a musician or whatever. <clears throat> I like to just say I'm a bridge builder or a life enhancer. I mean, it's sort I of like a, that. a bigger umbrella to sit under, Yeah. you know, because a lot of people, you and I know this, most people when you ask them what it, what what do you do? Oh, well, I'm a ferry driver mm. or a bus driver. You know, they take their job as who they are. And I suppose over the years I've learned that we're more than that and we are connected, whether we like it or not, to our family, to our lineage, mm. to our ancestry. And it's actually important for us to connect to that, not be ashamed of it, yeah. accept it, and realise that you're just part of a, a lineage passing through in this experience while you're here, you know. Beautiful. And yeah. we're all part of a much bigger picture. Totally. Um, when we keep that in mind, knowing that we're all legacy holders, um, what kind of legacy do you hope to leave behind for your children and grandchildren and future generations? Look, I, I probably think that um, my goal was to help humanity in such a small way, like a small dent, by... Even the podcast, being involved in something like this, is a small thing, but to some people it will be a big thing because mm. we'll teach them something they didn't know just through these conversations. So it's allowing people to know that you can do this type of thing too, that you have a voice, mm. uh, to allow people to, uh, I know what it is, creating platforms for people to have a voice, to share their thoughts and their feelings. You know, That's important to me. That's a legacy, I think. You can live beyond me. Yeah. You know, that's probably, whether that's through music or poetry or film or stories or theatre, to encourage those platforms for people to continue their stories. Too deadly. Mm. So I know you are very musically inclined. You've had a lot to do um, and a lot of input um, in the music industry. Yep. For me, music is a healer. You know, music is medicine. It's, it's an art form that crosses all barriers 
What does music mean to you and how important is it in your life? <laughs> People forget that it's such a fundamental, fundamental part of nature. Like it's not just a human thing. Mm. It exists in everything around us. And the older I've got, the more I appreciate it that, you know, nature itself is musical. Mm. So we have sort of borrowed from nature itself. So music, regardless of genres as we call them or, you know, different music styles, really music is drawn from the instinct of um, other, other sentient beings mm. and from the land itself. So I suppose for me music is, it, it, well, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people identify with particular types of musical genres not realising that they're only expressing that spirit of the time that they live in. So, for example, hip-hop and rap, is a growing phenomenon mm. phenomenon since, say, the 80s. Yeah. But for people born in 1950, 1960, rock and roll and rock was a big part of character building. Yeah. So I think every generation in these blocks of, you know, 20, 30 years uh, gravitates to different types of um, vibrations based on the spirit of the time. And so, you know, original music was simple. You know, mm. it didn't, you know, it was just voice and yeah. some wood clacking together and all that sort of thing. So, you know, music is uh, vibrational energy that connects us. Yeah. Love that. And just to think, you know, we're living on the most ancient um, landmass in the world, the most ancient civilization. So we, we are the oldest musicians. We have the oldest instruments in the world, our yiraki um, or didgeridoo, preyamandu. There's lots of different um, words for that. We also have our possum skin lap drum that women were able to and only to play. We've got um, clap sticks, you know, mm. all of these different instruments um, that raise our vibration. But you mentioned something about voice, you know, and just for me the power of the spoken word and sharing our story because at the end of the day that's all we go to the grave with, you know, our, our legacy and our stories and that's what connect us. And I think the beauty yeah. of podcasts to think that just by sitting here today having a yarn, we are continuing with the most ancient um, protocol because we are an oral race of people. All of our teachings were passed down from generation to generation just through storytelling, through songs and dance. And I love the fact that we can be sitting here in the heart of Mianjin or Brisbane continuing that ancient um, protocol of talking and passing down knowledge and hopefully um, in the process, encouraging and empowering and inspiring other people to share their stories as well because that's what connects us. And everyone has a story to share. Mm. Like I've met some people who say, oh, I don't have a story. You know, you've done some amazing stuff but I haven't done it. And I said, but a lot of it is just you getting out in action and doing something. You know, you can either be a uh, a consumer or you can be a producer and yeah. be a producer of your own content, whatever that means, mm. you know, create something and that will create a story, yeah. you know. So storytelling is like a content creator, you know, and everyone really does have a story to tell. We definitely do, know? yeah. So I want to ask you a question. Living in this country, being born and raised here, um, what do you think are some of the strengths and weaknesses of this country? So some of the weaknesses, if I start even, I'll start there. I think it's the ability for a lot of people not really to get deeper in respecting 
that there was a culture that has lived here longer than, like we know scientifically, they say 65,000 years. We know it's longer. Mm. They know it's longer, but they wouldn't have measured time. You know, so this is just a scientific stamp that says 65,000 years. And we know that there's science coming through 120,000 years. So that 65 will change. Yeah. It's a long time. I mean, I put that in perspective all the time, thinking Greek history is only 3,000 years. Egypt's only 5,000. China, you know, mm. they talk about ancient cultures. This is super ancient. Yeah. And, and to be part of that, for Australians to recognise that, you know, the weakness is that in a broader context we don't accept that we are now part of that story and for us to heal is to really understand that, not become that, respect that that is a true story and that that's real and that we can be a living part of that story. And once we embrace that, that's going to be our strength as a, as a country. You know? Perfect answer. Couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you for that. Very enlightening. So in my opinion, I would say that there are three very divisive topics in this country, the flag, the anthem and the day. What's your take on those three very controversial topics? Do you celebrate Australia Day? Do you call it Invasion Day, Survival Day? What does January 26 mean to you? You know, it's a complex sort of answer, but I, I, I'll give you sort of the thing that comes up for me all the time. And I, I will say that I read Stan Grant's book called Australia Day, which was a really interesting perspective. And I have to respect Stan Grant for what he put out there. Now, he doesn't speak. He even says, no, I don't speak. And no one can speak for all the nations yeah. of Aboriginal people. But he said what he, what he sort of hopes that we could come to is that we can agree to immerse ourselves in a deeper understanding and connection mm -hmm. with First Nations people to not necessarily go about trying to find another date. That's complex yeah. because I, he, he puts up the argument that there's these other four dates we could choose and gives rational arguments for all of them. But each of them is as contentious as the 26th of January. Yeah. Each of them represents something that, has like a divisive mechanism. There's not one that isn't divisive. So that's what he's saying. I mean, I'm not particularly fussed that it has to be 26th of January, but his argument is a strong one. It's more about deeply understanding each other and become part of the stories and fuse them so that we celebrate something of mm. coming together. You know, we actually celebrate that time, how to resolve those. Now, this year for the first time, I went to an Invasion Day march in Brisbane and I was up the front with um, Stephen Mann, who's a proud Torres Strait Islander man, holding a flag with him. And I got a first-hand knowledge of the, I suppose, why people go out and march about Invasion Day. And, you know, seeing those two worlds mm. where we pass people with the Australian flag, painted with the stickers on their face, who really, to me... It's not that they're ignorant. The, the term I found is called nescient. I love that term. Yeah, and they're nescient, which means they don't know what they don't know they don't know. You know, they, they're just not aware of it. That's the word of the day, folks. Nescient. 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 You don't know what you don't know. That's right. And so it's not because they're ignorant and that they're just doing it to be, you know, sort of objective to people who are out marching and protesting mm. about it. 
I think what they haven't realised is the connection that they could make to heal that, you know, so that you're not, you know, it's it's so complex. Yeah. It is so complex, you know. And uh, I'm doing a lot of reading, Bruce Pascoe's work, Dark Emu. I'm reading even a, a book at the moment called The Last Gundia, which is a book about historical fiction. So okay. it works around, and it's written, believe it or not, by a Pakistani guy who lives in Australia. And he's done some very deep research. And he covers the time of 1768 to colonisation through to about 1828. It's fascinating, the stories he talks about, because, you know, I think colonisation, again, the people who arrived were nescient and there was a lack of wanting to truly know. They just wanted to impose the system that they operated from and neglected neglected any learnings. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's part of the, the problem. There's so much to be learned from First Nations, you know, that's and there lies some of the answers, I think, for deciding the date. It's not about the date. It's about how you bring people together, seriously bring people together. Mm. Now, the other example is in our country we have multicultural. So we have the government calls it Indigenous or First Nations, multicultural, and then there's convicts and, you know, mm. the early migrants. So I've always seen that there's three pillars. And these three pillars I see all need healing, mm. you know, because multicultural people don't get the story about First Nations where yeah. their stories are probably very similar. Definitely. They've been evicted out of their own own land that they've been on for thousands of years. Mm. Uh, Democratic Republic of uh, Congo, Congo is one example, you know, that they've been pushed out of their country and, um, you know, they don't even understand or get told the story about First Nations. So, yeah. Hopefully that answers it. Yeah, yeah. it was really good. Thank you. So, Greg, in the next five or so years, um, what do you see or what are your hopes for the future of this country? So for me, unification and healing. I mean, they're two really strong things I want to put out there. But it's changing our narrative in terms of using words like multicultural and saying that we actually are living in an intercultural community. Yeah. And that includes everyone. It's inclusive. It's really inclusive of minority groups. Now, when I say minority, that's not to lessen those people in the minority because I think the minorities can become a large collective and be a majority if they could only see it. Yes. You know, um, so the example is, as we, some people don't know this, so it's a bit of an education. First Nations people, as in Aboriginal, Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, represent a roughly around 600 to 800,000 people. I, is, would that be correct? Yeah, well, our elders say put about 10% on the recent census data. It could be anywhere up to a million. Yeah, who identify. Identify, yeah. yes. And more and more people are choosing to identify because they're finding out their cultural heritage or they're feeling more comfortable and confident and safe in identifying. And so what most people don't realise, that that's 3% of the overall population, which is why it makes them a minority. Yeah. And even though here they would have been a majority in the beginning, for a number of years, a long time really, probably even for the first 100 years, yep. they were the majority. So I think definitely education and starting at the youngest age and I know some of the, the people that I know, like yourself and your family, mm. that are out there educating community, um, you know, corporate world, you know, you're looking at people of all ages, but I think, you know, it starts at kindergarten, 
And that's where our friend Uncle Alan Parsons, you know, who's one of our guests in upcoming, uh, he's out talking to four-year-olds about stories and yarning and what it means to be First Nation, which he didn't know until he was 30 or 40, I think it was. No. You know, like just a classic example. So I think in five years, I'm just hoping we have a lot more open education and that it, that re becomes a real thing on the ground at all levels, intergenerationally, you know, that all of that helps heal it. Yeah. Now, we know that this is going to take another generation or two to really, truly heal. But this is all just part of that process, you mm -hmm. know, and even our podcast is part of the process that we can share these ideas, share these stories so other people can feel comfortable talking about this openly, you know. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much, Greg. And just in closing, um, from your lived experience um, as a man that calls this country home, that has had, you know, the privilege of connecting with local mobs, what advice or what, um, what would you like to share with other people? Because we get a lot of questions and inquiries people that are wanting to connect with local um, First Nations people. And in some data, some of the census show that at least 70% of Australians actually identify um, or have acknowledged that they've had no, that they haven't met a First Nations person. So how can we continue to bridge that gap? Because I love that quote, nothing grows in your comfort zone, yet we're all very comfortable in our own little bubble. You know, I'm comfortable in my First Nations community, but how do we get out more and how do we, you know, continue to be agents of change and be, um, what was your term, building bridges or...? Yeah, building, con connecting communities. Yeah. To me, you know, you, you rightly point out that, you know, a lot of First Nations people can end up living in that bubble mm -hmm. and a lot of um, migrants, we'll call it, live in their bubbles, yeah. whether it's multicultural or white Europeans, you mm -hmm. know, British... The challenge is that if we only hear a First Nations story without also equally, you know, hearing um, the migrant story, whether it's the refugee story or the... So that there is an e e equal balance in those stories. You know, none is lesser than the other. Like yeah. They're all important. And I think for a lot of people I know in... Um, that, that we'll call them the white community they hear a certain tone that they hear and they misinterpret its message when it's coming from First Nations people. Some people misunderstand the message because they think that they're going over old history and da-da-da, but that's still, it's still early days. Like, mm -hmm. people got to remember that, you know, these timelines, we're only talking, you know, like 1967, you know, 19 sort of 80s, 1992, 1997. These are really important timelines of shift that's not that long ago so um yeah yeah well, i just want to say you know on behalf of my family and community here for those that are fearful of you know coming in and whether it's getting to know local people take greg's you know lived experience when you come into our communities with respect yeah. Um, exactly as Greg has done and you 
are focused on building relationships because when you build relationships, you're building trust. And this is the result of that, you know. Mm. We've known each other for a few years now. Yep. We've been able to work and connect, not just as colleagues, but as friends and friends, you know, yep. growing into family. You know, I, I call you brother and we have a much more deeper understanding of who we are as humans, whether you're black or white or wherever you're from. So this is a perfect, perfect example. And I won't use the word reconciliation mm. because my grandmother, sister, Rani Lilla says, well, we weren't even married in the first place. So what's there to reconcile in this country? Um, <laughs> Can I just add to that? Unification. Yeah, That's, unification. Yeah. On that um, reconciliation word, hence I much prefer bringing together, coming together. Yes. And, you know, on the reconciliation sites, they say oh, it's restoring broken friendships. In most cases, there were no friendships to start exactly. with, so they weren't broken. Mm. They just didn't exist. Yeah. So that's the part of the healing and understanding, you know, definitely. Yeah, well, yeah. thank you very much. No, thanks, Yarika. Give us a hug. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Appreciate it. Good, good start. Now, don't forget to subscribe. <laughs> Come to our website, www.walkin3, the letter 3, the number 3, worlds.com.au. Or you can see us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of the usual things. And, of course, our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Music, and all of the great where you find great podcasts. <laughs> Thank Your you. Your way. <laughs> um.